Father, we thank you for your grace that you've given to us in Christ, uh, that we have a full and rich salvation in him. We thank you for uh, the songs that we were able to sing this morning and to declare our heart to you of, uh, of a full reliance upon Jesus Christ. There is no other hope, uh, and this hope that we have is one that transcends all of our trials and tribulations in this life. And, uh, and also motivates us to partner with others in the gospel around the world so that we can see your church grow and the fame of Jesus spread. And it's for your sake, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the Apostle Paul and the, the Philippian church, they actually were church planting partners for between uh, 6 and 12 years together. Now, the reason it's such a long big spread, 6 to 12 years, is because Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church while he was in prison. And we don't know which prison he was in because he was in prison a lot, you know. And, uh, and so, but for six to 12 years, they were partnering together in the gospel. And the Philippian church was a very generous church um, in prayer, in giving of the funds that the apostle and his team needed, but also in sending people. Uh, they would send people to join his team to do church planning on occasion. In fact, there's no other church in the New Testament that was a partner with the apostle Paul like the Philippian church. Now, some of you uh, may remember how the church was founded. If not, I'll give you a quick brief overview. It's all in Acts chapter 16, right? In Acts 16, you know, the Apostle Paul and his team, uh, they're ministering in what is called modern-day Turkey, right? They're in the western region. They're planting all these churches. And then the Holy Spirit prevents them from going any other places in Asia, and they get the Macedonian call. And so they head over to Europe, right? And one of the first places they go to is Philippi. And they find a place of prayer. They meet a woman named Lydia, right? They preach the gospel to her. The Lord, it says, opened her heart. She received the gospel and a church is born, right? And then um, there's a lot of stuff going on at the same time, right? There's this slave girl who had a, a demon uh, within her and she was involved in fortune telling and she kept crying out after them and annoying the apostle Paul and his team, right? Sometimes demons are just that, they just annoy you. Right? And so what does the Apostle Paul? He just casts out the demon and they move on with life, right? And they keep doing things. But she becomes part of the church. And of course, then she stops being involved in divination and idol worship and selling idols and all these kinds of things. And so the people who owned her are really upset because now their hope for profit is gone because they can't use her anymore for their own ends. And so they decide to stir up the crowd. They seize Paul and Silas and uh, they get the city officials to throw them in prison. And they make up all sorts of stories about how they're teaching immoral behavior and all these kinds of things, and uh, customs that are not lawful for them to keep, right? So they're in prison, right? Feet, their feet are fastened in the stocks. They, at midnight, start singing and praying, uh, and praying and praising God, and then God sends an earthquake. And he opens the prison, right? And Paul and Silas escape. The jailer is about to kill himself, and then we get to that famous story or how, how can I be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. Right? And then, of course, after all this happens, <clears throat> the magistrates uh, send the police and say, okay, just get rid of these two guys and their team. We don't want them in the city anymore. And uh, Paul decides to uh, stand up to them. And he says, no, let, let those, uh, let those uh, you know, flaky politicians come and tell us themselves to leave. And he makes them lose face and apologize for what they did um, and because it was wrong. And so the church gets planted and then they move on, right? Matter of a few weeks. Now, the Apostle Paul loved this church and he would actually visit them uh, again on his third missionary journey. That was all in about 50 AD. So a few years later, he'd be back. 
Um, the church would send uh, gifts. They would send people uh, to him more than once. Um, there would be, Timothy would be sent on future visits as well, and uh, the apostle would make it himself. So turn to Philippians, the beginning of the book, chapters one through, chapter one, verses one through six, and we're gonna talk about partnership and why it's the most, one of the most joyful experiences as Christians and as churches uh, to be involved in partnerships for the gospel. You see, in fact, verse five tells you what the whole book is about. The whole reason the Apostle Paul wrote this letter is in verse five. It's because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, right? From that first day in Acts chapter 16, when the Lord founded his church and brought you in, until now, six to 12 years later, right? Partnering in the gospel together. So that's why he writes it, just to simply express his joy. And uh, you know, I know this church, most churches do. They have many partnerships throughout, throughout the world. And sometimes they're just sort of, you know, put on a shelf or a mission committee deals with them or something like that. But the partnerships really should be enjoyed more, I think, than what I've experienced in many churches in the United States. Because there's this strong bond that God created. And so what we're gonna learn this morning in verses one to two is that gospel partners are servants and saints together. And then in verses three to six, that gospel partners pray for one another and for their partnership. So let's look at verse, verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons or elders and deacons. So now you notice in this letter, I assume many of you are familiar with the New Testament, Paul does not refer to himself as an apostle. That's very unusual, right? That's because no one's, no one's debating that in this particular city, right? And notice how he describes himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, right? That's a privilege to be a servant of the Messiah, of the Lord himself, right? It's a privilege. It's just like Moses was called a servant of God. David was a servant of the Lord, right? The prophets refer to themselves as servants of God. And in fact, in this very letter, Jesus Christ in chapter two is lifted up as the best servant of all. He fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah because he is the suffering servant who is sent for God's people. So this, this whole metaphor of being a servant, or your translation may, be, may say slave, a slave of Christ, um, really says a lot. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that, but if we do, it transforms the way we minister because servants live in humble submission to their masters. Jesus Christ is our master. And we give him unquestioned obedience and we're preoccupied with pleasing him, right? That's what drives our life. What drives our life is wanting to serve him, wanting to please him, because having Jesus Christ as our Lord and master is not a burdensome thing. It's an honor, actually. It's an honored relationship that we have with him because of his love for us, and it's this exclusive obedience and allegiance we give to him. Now, Timothy is mentioned here. He's also a close ministry partner. Uh, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Most likely he didn't co-author this letter, um, but was probably involved to some degree. He co-authored some of the other letters. But the Philippians knew him well, and that's why Paul brings him up. If you look ahead in chapter two, verses 19 and following, the apostle writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all, others, seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 
I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will shortly come also. So it's already implied at the very beginning of the letter, not only is Paul a servant of Christ, not only is Timothy a servant of Christ, but the elders or overseers of this church and the deacons and the whole church that we're all servants of Christ. That's who we are. It's not a title reserved for those people that are somehow called to full-time ministry, but we're all servants of Christ Jesus. And there's another way we should view ourselves, and that is as saints here. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, or your translation may say, to the holy ones who are at Philippi. You see, because we're all holy ones, we've been separated out of this fallen world and our sinful life and consecrated to God's service. We were made saints by Christ's work on the cross and in his resurrection. And, and the Holy Spirit living within us continues to perfect us and make us holy people. Now we should be more comfortable with this title than, than we often honor because it, it really honors Christ, right? I mean, to say I don't want that title really dishonors what Jesus has done in your life, right? It's not an arrogant claim to be called a saint. And in fact, it would dishonor Christ because if you're embarrassed by this title, right? And we need to push aside this traditional view that we have because of our background that saints are these super holy people that deserve our veneration, right? The New Testament calls us saints over 60 times. It only calls us Christians three times, okay? So actually I had... Um, the privilege, I'm helping out another church up in, the, uh, up in the Bay Area at the moment, have been for the past year or so. And, uh, you know, so I'm going to embarrass you, Chelsea. So, uh, so anyway, so one of, the, one of the blessings of being up there was get to know Chelsea, and she came to faith in Christ this summer. And uh, she now lives in Lancaster, of all places. That's a crazy world. Um, but anyway, I just remember, you know, because we have similar backgrounds in a traditional upbringing, as well as my wife. And then there's this another uh, young adult at our church, Megan. Uh, she had a similar background, came to true faith in Christ. And I remember we, they just said, hey, we need to meet with you, Pastor Daniel, and clarify some things. And uh, one of those things was, so tell us about the saint thing, right? Who are the saints and what does the saint thing have to do? And I remember we just had a conversation about how this whole thing that right here is that we are the saints of Christ. It's not some special category of Christians. It's all Christians who've been separated. One pastor put it this way, he said, these saints, these holy people, they're actually unholy people who nevertheless as such have been singled out, claimed, and requisitioned by God himself for his control, his use for himself, who is the holy one. Their holiness is and remains in Christ Jesus, right? Because we're not making any special claim about ourselves. We're making a claim about God. We're making a claim about grace. We're making a claim about Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives. So we also, we continue to look here. There's this uh, little, little word here uh, to all the saints who are in Christ Jesus. And, uh, you know, I'm not one for focusing a lot on prepositions, but I think this one's really important. And that's because that's theological shorthand for so many things. When we are called that we are saints or holy ones in Christ Jesus, there's a lot being said here. That means our relationship to God is in Christ Jesus. We can't relate to God directly. We have to relate to him through Jesus Christ, the eternal son. And so this little saints in Christ Jesus means that's how we have that relationship. It's where we find justification before God. It also speaks to our union 
with, with Christ that we, and that we have benefits in his work on the cross. And so I think a much better translation of the Greek here would be living in, right, in this context, saints living in Christ Jesus, because that's where we get our life from. Jesus said, if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit if we live in him. In fact, this reality, now this church just happens to be located at Philippi. And the Apostle Paul had this global view of the church that we need to adopt as well. And it just so happens they live there. Like when he writes the Corinthian church later from Rome, he, he begins by saying, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So it's the same church. There's only one true church of Jesus Christ throughout all of history. And this one just happens to be in Corinth, right? You just happen to live in Lancaster, right? And you know, some of my friends, they just happen to live in Prague or happen to live in Shillong or just happen to live in some other part of the world. We're all part of that one global church. And that will refresh our perspective on things because we're not just us trying to change the world. It's all of us around the world that Jesus Christ is empowering. Now then, uh, he took, goes on and talks about how to the elders and deacons. Now, so who are the elders here? I don't even know anymore. Raise your hands. Okay, yeah, well, we, we know that's what elders do. They leave. Okay, and then who are the deacons? Yeah. Yeah, did you know that these people are saints too? I mean, it's hard to believe, I know, sometimes when you watch their life. But, but yes, so no, they're saints too. Right? And the Apostle Paul is the only letter where he addresses both of these people, uh, these groups of people, and it's probably because they're singled out because they're the ones most likely maintaining this partnership relationship with the Apostle and his church planning team as they travel around the world. So, but he wants to encourage the church to continue in this direction. Leaders especially, you know, need to remember that you're both servants and saints, just like we all are. And then comes the Christian grace and peace in verse 2, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a common blessing. We skip over it too, just like people would then. Oh, grace and peace, right? So, But these are filled with wonderful theological meaning for us, of course, because we notice immediately here that these come from both God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Christianity is a monotheistic religion, right? It's uh, the only true religion. We believe that there's only one God but he eternally exists in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you even, you'll see that in every single letter in the New Testament, and here it comes out again, right? Both the Father and Jesus are God, both the Father and Jesus are Lord, and Jesus is called the Lord here with divine meaning that the blessings come from him as well as from the Father, right? Later on in Philippians 2.11, it says, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we've received this grace and peace in the gospel, and sometimes we think that's all there is to it. Yeah, God gave me his grace. God brought peace into my life. I have peace with God. I have peace with, in my soul. I have peace in life. I have peace with my friends. But we still have this grace and peace that continues to be received from him. And that's what the blessing is bestowed upon them, is that may God continue to grant you grace and peace to live fully for him. And that's what we want to receive as we continue to minister to the people in this world. Now, did you notice already in this introduction to the letter that Jesus Christ, or rather Christ Jesus, has appeared three times already, right? In two simple verses. 
right? And that's because this is the orientation of the whole letter, right? We are his servants, right? It's not about us. We are his saints, even that, our whole life. It's about bringing glory to Jesus Christ. And we are the ones who are recipients of grace and peace, right? Everything we have comes from him. And I think that if you don't take anything else from this letter, there's enough in the introduction to meditate upon because everything in the Christian life is about Jesus. It's about bringing glory and honor to him. It's about understanding how we fit into that. And that is that we belong to him. We serve him and we are his saints. We're his trophies of grace and we are his church. And that's what makes the difference. So second of all, then gospel partners pray for one another and their partnership. We see this prayer of thanksgiving in verses three to five and then a confident prayer at the end in verse six, where he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So here, again, we see this, this passion of the apostles. See how many times all comes up in some kind of a way, right? All these phrases, I thank my God. He's thankful because they sent a gift when he needed it. He's thankful because they sent Epaphroditus to them um, and his service. He wasn't just bringing the gift. He was going to be a part of the church planting team for a season until the apostles sent him back. But it's prompted from all his memories of them. Did you notice that? all these memories over the years that he has of them. I mean, that's the pattern. We remember what God has done and we give thanks to God, right, through prayer and then joy comes into our life, right? I mean, that's what I did this morning, remembering, wonderful time serving here with all of you and it brings to mind thankfulness to give thanks to God and just take joy in the partnership. But wherever we go and whatever partnership we're in, that's how it works. You know, and they know Paul's praying for them when they get this letter. I mean, that's really encouraging to hear that, uh, you know, people are praying for you, you know, and uh, think about all that God has accomplished through this church in the last, you know, five years even, let's say, or maybe even from 2018, right? And you realize you don't just sort of count what's going on here. You have to count everything that you're doing through all your partners around the world because that's part of who you are. That's part of the church. That's part of the accomplishment. It's a very influential church. Most normal-sized churches like this are the most influential churches in the world. So then, you know, notice how he says, I always pray for you, frequently, over and over again he's praying, and in every prayer, meaning, emphasizing, he's thinking of very specific things. He's not just saying, oh, thank you, God, for the church in Philippi. Thank you, God, for the church in Lancaster. But thinking through specific things to give God praise for. And then for all of you, he's praying for the whole church. I'm sure he's praying for the leaders especially, but he's praying for a unified church because when a church is unified, it can accomplish a lot. When it's all full of division, like the Corinthian church, they're completely ineffective. They don't accomplish anything of value, right? And he says he's praying with joy. Joy is mentioned in this book 14 times, right? Some, uh, some commentators like really simple titles. I don't, but as you all know, but uh, uh, Philippians, Joy, as if joy just sort of sits out there in the world, right? It's not about joy. It's about joy in the gospel. It's about joy in Christ. It's about joy in partnership. It's joy that's focused, and it's joy that comes from very specific things. That's what this whole book is about, is about celebrating that partnership with them. 
So he gives a specific reason, right? And that's in verse 5. And again, it's the word we've been saying all the time, partnership. But uh, some of your Bibles might have a different word there. Does anybody have fellowship in their Bible? Yeah, you do? So the word in Greek is actually one you know, koinonia, right? Because we sort of stole it from the Greek, and now it's sort of a semi-English word. And uh, we use it in church all the time. But for us, we think koinonia is a good Bible study with good food, right? That's what koinonia is, right? So, but that's not what the word actually means, right? That's how we tend to use it. But it has a relational dimension, and it has a mission, a mission or missional dimension. And so the term, before it became a Christianized term, um, was a term of close friendship, to be in koinonia with one another, this bond, this relationship. Or even if you belong to the same, you know, little organization or association, you had these, these friendships or these buddies or these good friends, you'd talk about koinonia. But it was also a term at the time that described uh, participating in something together, a mutual interest. Um, in fact, it's a term that could refer to a business, right? It could be a business or a mission. And so now it's a sanctified term because of Christ's work and the work of the Spirit. And so now we use koinonia to talk about church life or to talk about mission partnership, right? But it has to have both dimensions, the relationship piece and the mission piece. It's not just getting together and having coffee and donuts, right? That's not koinonia, right? So koinonia is being on mission together as a church. So that's what he's talking about here. So this Philippian church has become such close friends in church planting mission business with Paul. And so they've been partners, right? I already mentioned funds, people, prayer. You know what else? They suffered together. So I was thinking that when we were singing that song, this last one by John Newton, I don't remember the exact title of it, but just uh, you know how we are destined as Christians to go through life, and part of that is suffering for the gospel. And these people too. And I didn't get a chance to talk about that this morning. I did a few weeks ago. But at the beginning of every year, uh, there's an annual report that's put out on where it's toughest to be a Christian in the world. Okay? And they have a bunch of criteria for that and where is it the toughest place to be a Christian. And all the usual suspects make the top list, right? You know, you got North Korea, you know, you got some of the other places you might know. But the biggest thing that was pointed out this year was the two countries that moved up the most were India and China. India made it into the top 10. It's one of the toughest places to be a Christian in the world. And I've actually had in China, I've seen some of that. And so is China and other places. It's very tough to be a Christian. But it doesn't bother them too much because they know that their life is to be given as a servant of Christ. And they're to be continually church planting. And so they do this anyway. And so the Philippians, if you looked at the end of chapter 1, verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have, right? Because he's in prison for the gospel. And he'll get out and he'll do some more work, of course. But so this is the, the context, is that we suffer together as a church. And uh, as other New Testament writers talk about how when we hear about that happening, it should bring up feelings of empathy. But more than that, as Christians, we want to pray for the faithfulness of our brothers and sisters under trial. We want to pray for the faithfulness of speaking the gospel, that God would use it to witness to his glory and save other people around the world too. 
So confident prayer comes in verse 6. And I'm, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You know, we're still on that topic of prayer, actually. The Apostle Paul has confident conviction that God's work in them as a church is going to continue. It's going to continue, right? And later in Philippians 2.13, he says, For it's God who works in you, both to cause the willing and the working for his own purposes. Ephesians 2.10, the apostle writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So the good work here, this is really important in verse 6, okay? That he who began a good work in you, that good work is the partnership. That's what's being talked about here. That's the antecedent. It's the koinonia. That's the good work that God started in the Philippians. He brought them into the mission. And so it's going to grow, it's going to last, it's going to thrive. It's something that God created. The Apostle Paul didn't have this relationship with every single church that he's planted. You know, we only have the highlights in the Bible. He planted hundreds of other churches that aren't even in the scriptures, right? And we know that from history by, by how the churches have grown. And God sustained this partnership. This was a unique relationship he had with them. And what the apostle is saying is that God's going to finish his work. He's going to complete it at his own time when he brings it to completion then it will be done, right? But the effects of that partnership will never end. It'll be a lasting permanent effect because they've been involved together in preaching the gospel and planting the church, and that's just gonna continue to have ripple effects throughout history until Jesus Christ returns. That's huge. I mean, is it possible to view partnerships like this? I think it should be, and I think when it does, it, it, it gives us strength and hope and endurance in things, and even zeal through all sorts of things that happen. I think of the trials of my partners, my friend, whose little boy had cancer. I was actually at a training event in Thailand, and I got a phone call from him rushing down the mountain from um, Nepal or Bhutan, I don't remember, and just saying, I just found out my son has a brain tumor, and I got to get down, you know, so will you pray for me, you know? And it's hard, you know, because you're ministering out there together, you're always tough, especially men. You know, and here he is crying on the phone because his son has cancer. And, uh, and then being with him through that whole thing. Well, that's a trial, right? But is it going to stop him from ministering the gospel? This is a strong man in the Lord, but it's really interesting that he told me one day, he confided in me, he said, you know, when we were down in Valor just waiting for treatment, all these Hindu people are around us offering to offer sacrifices to their gods for my son. And because I came from that background, I was tempted to let him do it, but I didn't do it. And I stayed strong and I told him no, because my Jesus will heal him if it be his will. But that was a real temptation because of his background, right? And the hardships continue. There are relational difficulties. You know, you know it's not just American churches that have the gift of church strife, okay? Yeah, I mean, many churches around the world, they all fight with each other, right? And uh, they bite and devour one another, like it says in Galatians 5.15, right? And that's the devil's trick, because if you can bring about disunity, well, you'll get nothing done. It's perfect. It's a great plan. So, but church strife is all over the world, too, and we walk into it in training. How do you bring about peace? One of the most common questions in Northeast India is, and this is a tribal region, and we bring people in from Bhutan and Nepal and other Bangladesh and Burma and all these places, is like, so how do we forgive the tribe next door that last year came over to our place, uh, kidnapped a few people and killed them. You know, 
What do we do about all this intertribal rivalry that's been going on for centuries between our tribes? And how does Christianity, because now that we're both Christian tribes in a sense, right? They've been Christianized, but there are definitely Christians, true Christians in each tribe. So how do we do that? And so that's one of our biggest questions, which is tough because we don't know the answer to that question, right? Because we never experienced that. So we have to help them think through the right questions. This kind of stuff happens all the time or you misunderstand each other, especially cross-culturally, and you have to apologize to your partners. Disappointments happen. You know, we've planned big training events. You've sent funds for it, and then the government decides to shut the border down. And, uh, and there's a blockade, people can't get through. Or there's no fuel available to transport people. Now, that's what happens in these types of places in the world, right? Or like our friends in Asia got their church raided, right? And, uh, and uh, get detained. And you never know how long they're gonna be detained. They don't have similar rights as we do here. And then, you know, we have friends that have been put in prison. We had a couple guys from Bhutan a number of years ago that wanted to come to one of our trainings, got arrested right before they were in prison for a while. And so the whole church organizes ways to get food up to them because they're not gonna feed them in this prison, okay? They don't get TVs and all that stuff, right? They'll languish away in prison, right? So the church has to go feed and take care of them. And the violence continues to rise. Uh, my friend Mong, one of his friends, I remember a story. We were scouting out some new training venues in somewhere in South Asia, I don't remember. And uh, we got up in the hotel, went down to have breakfast, and there on the TV were a bunch of riots that were taking place in Bangladesh. Later that morning, he found out one of his friends was martyred, right? And so he had to call his friend while we were on the way to our next venue, just or he had to call his friend's wife and explain to her and talk to her and console her. So this is reality for so many Christians around the world. In fact, that report I mentioned now says that 83% of evangelical Christians around the world live in places in the world where it's very, very difficult to be a Christian. And one out of three Asians on the planet live in a place where it's really difficult to be a Christian. All these types of things happen. So this is a but, but this church keeps moving, right? It doesn't deter Apostle Paul. It doesn't deter the Philippians. It doesn't deter my friends in South Asia or my friends in, in East Asia. And actually, I'm the one that benefits the most because I go there and I learn how to be more resolute in my own faith. So, so we often take this verse, 6, which I want to spin it for you a little bit so you can see the bigger term, is we often take verse 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus as a proof text for eternal security for individual salvation, right? This good work is your salvation, personal salvation. Only you, nobody else apparently, just you. And we use this verse to say that we have eternal security in Christ. Well, theologically, of course, that's true. And you can use this verse for that, but that's like only 10% of its meaning. It doesn't account for all that's there. And, uh, and to look at it this way, or even first, is you miss out on so much. You miss out on koinonia. You miss out on true fellowship and true mission. It's not just a passage about us individually and you getting into heaven. Rather, it's bigger than eternal security. It's about partnership in the gospel. It's about all of us getting into heaven in Christ Jesus if we have faith in him. It's about us together as a church. And so gospel partners pray for one another in the partnership. You know, the Philippian church really believed it when Paul said that he was praying for them. And, uh, and I mean, imagine how encouraging that would be to be a struggling church. The apostle left you 
you know, and now you're trying to make things, figure it all out. It's just, wow, he's praying for us, you know, and it's so, it's so wonderful to know that, you know, and I pray for Trinity Community Church, I pray for Tim especially, um, you know, some people need prayer more than others. Yep, definitely him. So, but we pray for him, you know, and we're all partners in the gospel, right? And we're doing it together. And, uh, you know, so let's keep praying and being thankful with joy for these partnerships uh, and the future developments. Who knows where the Lord's going to take you in the future as well? Uh, it's a very simple message this morning, right? Just be happy, right? Be joyful in the gospel, in the church, in partnership, in your relationships, in the mission. That's why we're here. God has called us out to be unique. So I want to encourage you that Trinity Church is a good partner, right? I have a lot of partners. This, you are a really good partner, okay? And uh, your leaders, all of you as individuals, uh, so keep growing, keep learning, keep being inspired by all the places you're involved in around the world. And I know it's not just with us. So really that's all we wanted to do is come today and to enjoy that fellowship with you. Uh, my wife and Isaiah is here and uh, as well. Uh, so gospel partnerships are good creations of God. He brings them together. They're not just us sort of figuring out where it might be good to work together, right? And so we are servants and saints together, and we pray for one another. And the Apostle Paul was very pleased with the church at Philippi. He was very pleased with how the gospel had been progressing there. If you read the whole letter, you'll learn a lot about that. And, uh, and the Philippians were inspired uh, by this letter, and they continued to be faithful. You can read the book. It's all about standing firm for the gospel, its truth, and being united in spirit and mind and heart and love all these things that will make you an effective church. So let me pray for you. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us, especially uh, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, that you've called us all to be your servants in Christ. You've called us to be saints in, the, in, in, our, in our orientation towards you and the way we live our lives, and you work out these realities in our life. I thank you for Trinity Community Church, the work that you've done in this church, that you're continually doing through them, uh, and everybody individually, in, in the partnerships and in the mission accomplishments and the goals that you've given to them. Um, I give thanks to you and take great joy in them. And we pray above all that as this letter began, grace and peace, that these two blessings you would continue to pour out upon this church and our lives, that your grace would be, empower us for all the things that you want us to do, for the good works and the preaching of the gospel and that your peace would settle on our souls so that in the midst of tribulation and trials and opposition, that we'll just continue to be resolute in preaching the good news of the glory of the gospel of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.